we'll come to the church at Pergamos which you can see if you look at Revelation 2 and 3 Ephesus is the first church Smyrna the second church and the third one which is the church which is a compromising church and the church which is married to the world in other words a state church so let's read from Revelation 2 just shortly from 12 through to 17 12 to 17 and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword I know your works and where you dwell where Satan's throne is and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. It goes back to the book of Numbers. To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Pergamos. Well, on one of your charts you can see that Pergamos has been like an elliptical circle uh, of the churches and they all knew about each other. <coughs> and Pergamos was about 30 miles north of Smyrna, which is a suffering church. It's only a village now called Bergama. But it was a very large and famous city back in the Roman Empire. Of, uh, <coughs> and it attracted the very famous and learned Greeks. And there was a massive library there, Greek full of learning, of course. <clears throat> it was a wealthy city, with many costly temples for idol worship, of course, which is what these Christians living in this town uh, had to deal with. But the city contained four pagan temples dominating the city. There was a temple to Zeus, Dionysius, Athena and Esculapius. Now Esculapius is interesting because Esculapius is the serpent god of healing. Now I was in the IF medical branch and uh, when we were qualified we had the, the twisted serpent yeah. with wings which we had to put on our uniform. It was in brass but that was very clear and of course you know the National Health Service has got the twisted snakes. Well, it's after the serpent god of healing. So many people came to this city expecting to be healed. I suppose in one sense it's very much like the Marian shrines where people like to come like lords for healing. I won't say any comment about that. So Pergamos was very much a city dominated by pagan worship and the temples associated with the pagan religion, with their priests and so on. So that was a very real problem. If you look in chapter 2 and verse 13, he says, I know your works, some are faithful to the Lord, and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, 
you may have seen a, a photograph of Satan's throne. It's in the a museum in Berlin at the moment. It was moved first from Babylon, then to Pergamos, and then eventually it went to Berlin. I won't go into that now. So the people there, of course, with these, these pagan ceremonies and worship ceremonies, they had meat which had been offered to idols. Now, of course, Paul wrote about this elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, that they were to avoid that completely. And because some of them were involved in this. Now, the Christians, both in Corinth and here in Pergamos, they used to belong to these, what they call, city guilds. It would be silversmiths, coppersmiths, uh, goldsmiths, and so on. And they would, about once a month, they'd have their own pagan ceremonies, and they would eat meat <coughs> offered to idols, they'd have a great party there, where had a lot of immorality going on there. And when some of them became believers, they realized they haven't to associate with that, of course. But during those times, a lot of trade and business was made between the people there. So when you became a Christian, you came out of it, and therefore you lost a lot of employment, but a lot of income in the hard times. So that's what the faithful believers in this city had to put up with, and the church. And this was a church that really literally was married to the world. That's what the word pergamos means. Gamos is marriage, like in Revelation 19. So this city was a stronghold of Satan. Satan, see, was big, dominated the whole city with the pagan temples, of course. And Esculapius, this serpent god of healing, that dominated the city as well. So the Christian believers had a very hard time. They had to stand firm. <coughs> and the problem was that uh, because the city was dominated by satanic power, which is clear opposition to the gospel. So they had a tough time there in their witness as well. In other words, Satan seek a stronghold to the prince and the power of darkness. So the church was a rather fearful church. They were swamped by all these paganism all around them. And they were not a very, some of them were not a very strong church at all. Uh, they had a lot to tolerate and a lot to fight against. It was a, a place where there was much fear in the, among the Christians. Now this city of Pergamos was a centre of Roman domination. It was a royal Roman city. So that was another problem as well. The Roman army and the Roman, Roman boot was crushing the people from that point of view, from the Roman Empire. So these believers had a very rough time. Now just think about what that is and put yourself in their position. How would you, how would you and I feel about that? Obviously the Roman Empire, all these pagan gods and the temples, are all against the Christian gospel. And darkness prevailed in many ways. So they really were up against it. And naturally, you can imagine Satan had power over the civil authority, as well as the pagan temples, the pagan religions, as well as behind the Roman Empire, of course, the war was pagans. That was pretty tough going. Now, the Apostle Paul, and we'll look at them in a moment, in a couple of places said, Satan hindered me in my work. We might find that rather strange, but he did. Let's go and find out where that is. First of all, would you go back to first? Thessalonians chapter 2 First Thessalonians chapter 2 and see what Paul testified to here First Thessalonians chapter 2 
And look at verse 18. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 18. This was Paul's experience, of course, as well. Paul says, We wanted to come to you again, <coughs> even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. Time and again, he tried to go. Whatever it was, we don't know. But prevented it. Maybe it was political situation. We don't know what it was. That just, We just don't know. Go back to Acts chapter 17 with me, would you? Acts 17. And look at a few verses there, from verses 5 through to 9. Paul here was, of course, in, uh, in around Thessalonica, like First Thessalonians 2. And then this is where Satan was hindering Paul, right at the beginning of his witness. Now, he was only in Thessalonica for three weeks, and then the crowds and the people in opposition drummed him out of town. Let's see this. Notice who is behind it. Verses 5 through to 9. Acts 17, 5 to 9. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious. They took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, which is where Paul was in his witness and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, and their brethren, fellow Christians, to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason, the rest they let them go. And verse, nine, verse 10, you can see that Paul and Cyrus left by night to go to Berea. So that's one reason why Satan certainly hindered his words. Only there three weeks, but he did do a lot of teaching for the lovely church at Thessalonica. They were a great group. So Paul knew what the opposition was even way back here. So as I say, the civil authorities stopped Paul from preaching, and that made it difficult for the church anyway, later on in Pergamos. Now, you've got to go back to uh, where we were reading, and the, the church here in Pergamos, and you see there's one man's name here, and his name is Antipas, in verse 13 of chapter 2 of Revelation. The Lord knows all about the situation, and know your works and where you dwell. He knows only. He's walking among the lampstands, as we heard before. And he said, Though those who hold fast to my name, there was a minority of people. Even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So the Romans, with a lot of opposition with them, imprisoned Antipas. By the way, his name means against all, and all was against him. So he is against all that was evil, but there's so much of that against him as well, as a faithful Christian. So, there, I mentioned this about the church at Smyrna two weeks ago. The Romans challenged this man, Antipas, and all the others too, and he refused to worship the emperor. He would not bow down to an effigy of the emperor, or burn incense and worship the emperor. He said, no, I won't. Jesus is my king. 
I won't do it. So he refused. He was brought out the second day, third, fourth, fifth, eighth, ninth, right through to the tenth day. And he still refused. He said, very well, you lose your life. And they beheaded him. A faithful martyr, it says here, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Mm. Yeah. So that little church had a very tough time. And I suppose that caused them some fear, and that's understandable as well. But you know what Jesus says, fear not those who kill the body that can't touch the soul. In Luke 12. So this little church had a tough time. As I said, Satan's seat dominated the city. It was like a gigantic staircase. And at the top of that, there was another temple anyway. So today, Satan's seat is in the museum in Berlin. It was taken there and reconstructed stone by stone. So the to the believers in Pergamos, although Satan's seat and the throne on top of the staircase was high, the scriptures tell us Jesus is high far above all. Mm-hmm. Praise the Lord for that, of course yeah. he is. That's important. So here was this small church. It wasn't very big. Jesus only spent a little time talking with them. And uh, they had a hard time in midst of fierce opposition, both to the Lord, their Saviour, and also to believers themselves. 1 John 5.19 I'll read it out to you uh, say if you're looking at it 1 John 5 1 John chapter 5.19 this is what it says we know we are of God and the whole world lies in the wicked one the idea of lying there is that Satan has lulled them asleep in the lap of Satan that's what it means you know Satan is called the prince of this world isn't it Jesus referred to that in John's gospel but you see, the wonderful thing is, again, First John 3, the Lord Jesus has already judged the works of Satan. Mm-hmm. says he came to destroy the works of Satan, not yet Satan himself, but to destroy the works of, the works of Satan are sin, death, the grave, hell, mm-hmm. the lake of fire. For the believer, all that's destroyed. Praise the Lord. Mm-hmm. Amen to that. Amen. So they were encouraged by this truth and this tremendous promise and the Lord kept them. So clearly we've got here that this city of Pergamos was Satan's headquarters. His throne was there. Prince of Darkness. He ruled there. Tough time for them. And uh, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 again I'll just make you look at it. Why don't we look at that up? 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. Where do you find it? 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. And this is the satanic opposition, of course, to anyone, us too. 2 Corinthians 4 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. <coughs> God of this world, yeah, that's why it's hard to witness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People are blind and they're dead in trespasses mm-hmm. and sins, Ephesians 2. Mm-hmm. So it's tough in their witness yeah. to get through. Mm-hmm. Now, we've got the words of the Lord Jesus here. He's head of the church. 
and he has a different word to say to each of these seven churches. You can see what on the sheet that uh, Robert Bender just sent out, you can examine it later, what Jesus said to all seven churches in different ways. You can see that yourself, what he said to this church. Look back in chapter 1 of Revelation, would you? And look at verse 16. We see that the Lord Jesus Christ has all authority. He is far above all. He's in the highest place of all, sitting at the right hand of his Father in heaven. And he's the one who has preeminent power. Nobody can match him. Revelation 1.16, encouraging to us all. He has in his right hand the seven stars. That's the leaders of the churches. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. That's mentioned, I think, twice to Pergamos church. And his countenance, the very appearance, was like a man, sun, shining in his strength. Imagine the transfiguration. He is the son of righteousness. And he shines. We won't see it yet. The three on transfiguration mount did just for once. It's a glimpse of the kingdom before it came. So we'll see it too. Well, here's the man with, well, man Christ Jesus, the Son of God, deity, of course, equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit. His whole appearance was one like the sun shining in its strength. Majesty. Glory. Well, the Christians at Pergamos need to know that, and we need to know that, and Christians persecuted around the world need to know that. And the Lord particularly meets them. Now these dear Christians, they had to suffer much, as you can see. They saw what happened to Antipas. I'm sure that caused great fear, that's understandable. But you see, in this situation now, when we come, as we did last time, to the church at Smyrna, which means suffering, mer, suffering. That was really a suffering church. But here is a big change, and Satan is very subtle about it. Whereas there was real compromise in this church and in Thyatira and in Laodicea, where the church was being willing to be allied to the world. I mentioned last time that Constantine uh, became emperor, as you know, and he so-called became a Christian. He didn't really. But he had a battle of Milvern Bridge in 313 AD, I think it was. And he won the battle, and he saw what he said, a sign in the sky of the cross. So he said, right, all the empire will become Christian now. So all his pagan temples and his pagan priests became Christians overnight. Not really. Of course not. Well, the priests were in the payroll of the emperor anyway, so they wouldn't uh, do otherwise. Trouble is, you see, the church is married to the state. And we still have that round with us today, don't we? And it's very weak. Of course it is. And that's a big problem. When you come on to these other churches, Satan changed his tactics from persecution. The world comes into the church and Satan goes to compromise. Pergamos, many of them, not all, many of them compromised and weakened them. Were they believers? Well, we don't know. That was a big problem. Yes, this church faced death, 
and suffering, yes, just like Smyrna. But you see, Satan decided to change tactics. You know, he, he, well, he found out you can't wipe out the church through murder and persecution, but you can deal it a big, heavy, weakening blow by compromise and nicking the state and church together. What did Jesus say? Come out from among them, mm. touch not the unclean thing, yeah. and I'll be a father to you. That's a promise. Mm. A few here, they did that. <coughs> So they were pressures of a different kind. They'd had persecution, Antipas really suffered. Then there's a quick change, subtlety. Satan is very subtle. Got a lot of pride, isn't he? So Satan eventually could not crush. When we come through to the Philadelphian church, that was a godly, faithful, victorious, preaching, evangelistic church. And Satan hated it. So there was a church there. Now all these churches... They are real churches, really existed historically, but they got a prophetic theme, as I said before. Prophetically, this is a church linked with the state, and it's all around us today. When we come to Thyatira, it's a picture of a wicked woman taking control in the church. We've got that today. Sorry, about us. You've got the Philadelphia Evangelizing Church. The Lord said, "I give an open door. Go through. Serve me and witness to my gospel." And then you've got that dramatic sudden change to the Laodicean apostate church. The Lord mm-hmm. said, I'll spew out of my mouth. I don't know what to do with you. Mm-hmm. That's around us today as well. Mm-hmm. So all seven churches, you've got a suffering church, Ephesus. And Smyrna. You've got the Ephesian church, which backed off and got cold. You've got that today. These are prophetic types and through church history, they all exist from the beginning Ephesus, right through to Laodicea, the end, and the Lord comes to the church, Philadelphia. We see that when we get. So that's how it is. So, what we find here is that Satan tried to get these Christians, and maybe those who are nominal, to lower their standards of practice and life. And that's what went on here. James says, and John says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Mm. It must not and cannot work. We know that. So, there's a world trying to keep the church near to the world's standards. The world gets into the church, and you know, in some of the cathedrals had notification of this. They put a fairground into some of these cathedrals in our country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah equivalent to that. Pretty terrible, isn't it? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. So the church and the world should be going in opposite directions, but not in this case. The words of Jesus, Luke sixteen thirteen. No servant can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other. Or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is a picture of materialism and worldly security. Can't have it. Our security, our dependence is on the Lord Jesus Christ. He keeps and surprises. So the Lord Jesus faces the church with a challenge. He says in verse 14, I've got a few things against you. In verse 16 he says, Repent or else I'll come to you with the sword out of my mouth, which he mentioned in Revelation 1.16. 
I'll come to you and I'll fight against you with the sword from my mouth. That's his word. Sword of his mouth. Same in the end of the book of Revelation. He comes with a sword and his word slays as he will. So we know the word of God is the sword of the Spirit in Hebrews 4.12. Needn't to be up. And the Lord says in Revelation 19, I mentioned just now 15 and 21, he will smite the nations with the sword, the word of truth out of his mouth. And you know that <laughs> that could even fit this particular church in Pergamos as well. So there are two types of people, well, some true believers, some make-believe believers, well, I don't know, maybe so, possibly. So you've got the true believers, you can see that in verse 13, <coughs> about the faithful martyr Antipas and those like him. And you've got the false in verses 14 to 16. Those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, I'll mention that in a moment, <coughs> and uh, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, in Numbers, be very brief on this, <coughs> Balak, the king of Iraq, tried to persuade, oh, I don't know where Balak came from, I don't know, but, but uh, Balaam was from a prophet, false prophet from Iraq. And Balak tried to bribe him to speak out a judgment against the Jewish people, against Israel. So whenever Balaam opened his mouth, out came blessing, not cursing. And he did this a couple of times or so. It's in numbers. And uh, Balak was quite mad about it, of course. And then Balaam had, well, I've got an idea. I can't speak cursings because only blessings come out of my mouth. Strange as it may be, can't explain it. But he said, I'll tell you what, if you get the Jewish people, Israelitish men, to link up with women of Moab and commit immorality and accept their idolatrous gods, God would be very displeased, which he was, of course, and judge them. And, of course, that is what happened. You can see that here. The doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, link up with the Moabite women and marrying them and to commit sexual immorality which they did of course that pretty well destroys them and God judged them for it and then you've got the Nicolaitans that comes in two Greek words Nike you know on your athletics shoes Nike and Ike comes from this means conquering mm. if you wear those shoes you'll conquer Oh. <laughs> that's what they think <laughs> no Nicolaitans Nike or Nike and Laos which means people so Nike is those who conquer the people the priest craft the priest lords it over the people Jesus says I hate it so he hates the hierarchy or hierarchy of the church he doesn't want it he does appoint elders it does appoint by the court bishops, their elders. But you have all the rest of the structure of organized Christendom. And the Lord says, I hate it. Those who lord it over the people as priests. I hate it. Because Jesus says, I'm the Lord. I'm going to turn to. So that's what happened there. So, let's look and see what the Lord promises 
to those who are bred. Look down to verse 17. Chapter 2 and 17. To those who overcome, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Hidden manna? Well, we know what the manna was in the wilderness, <coughs> which is given to sustain the people. And in, from our point of view, Jesus is the bread from heaven in John's Gospel. He is the bread of life, and we're to feed on him. Amen. So this is very personal. It's very private. It's spiritual. It's invisible. See, the body of Christ is invisible. The bride of Christ is invisible. You might have believers sat among nominal Christians, and you can't tell the difference in a church in congregation. The Lord knows the difference. He knows his own bride. He knows the people who he will call to be linked up with him in mm. heaven. Yeah. So believers may have been excluded, as I mentioned before, uh, from the social life. And all the morality and idolatry <coughs> went in the guilds. They were excluded from that. But these, these sincere, true believers in the Lord fed on Christ. Privately, personal, spiritual, and their walk with the Lord. And the Lord commended them. It's just like, in a sense, communion. The bread and the wine are close linked with the Lord at that particular time. We know his presence very well. So we're called to feed on Christ. Now, of course, the emblems of bread and wine are only symbols. We know that. But we're to feed on Christ, the living bread, as we know that. Mm. Um, that's in John's Gospel, chapter 6. You know about it anyway. So I won't turn to that now. So our own personal communion with the Lord Jesus, I'm not talking about the Lord's table, but our own personal walk and our close communion with the Lord Jesus Christ is what he looks for. It's what he blesses. And in the midst, like these people, of difficulty, persecution, call it what you like, <coughs> the world in darkness and you're in the light, that's there. So when we have this close walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, he does promise to strengthen us. He is the bread to strengthen us from heaven. And he will do it for his faithful believers. Mm -hmm. He says, I will give some of the hidden manner, the secret walk with the Lord, but he knew him personally. Mm -hmm. Perhaps in many cases nobody else knows your own private relationship with the Lord. Of course, I know our witness is public, and our gathering is public. But this is what he says to these Christians. I, you'll be faithful to me. You stand firm against all the opposition you've got around you, where Satan's throne is. You stand firm for me and I'll give you my secret fellowship. I'll give you my hidden manner to feed you. What a blessing that is. It is. That's wonderful, isn't it? Mm -hmm. He'll give us his fellowship. <coughs> the Lord says, I love to have fellowship with you. Like here tonight. So when we're in union with Christ, it says we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. In Philippians 4, 13. So that's very encouraging, isn't it? That is our own personal experience. We know that. Just in closing, finishing off. So in other words, we can feed on Christ. We can fellowship with Christ. He's our shepherd. We've been singing about that. He's a shepherd. He's a good shepherd. He's a great shepherd. He's the chief shepherd, as Peter tells us. If you love and obey... There's no other way to be happy in Jesus Amen. except to trust and obey. So the world knows nothing about that. And much of Christendom doesn't know it either. Mm. It's hidden from them. They don't know the hidden manner. 
because it's spiritual and personal. So this is the dwelling in the secret place, Psalm 91, in the shadow of the Almighty in the secret place. That's our fellowship with him and, of course, one another. So you find there, even there, in Satan's stronghold, in the darkness of the idolatry, in the pagan temple, though those who stood firm and others compromised, oh, the Lord knows all about them. He says, I walk among the churches, I walk among the lampstands. I know, I know, I know. I see you. And I'm with you. I will uphold you, I'll feed you, I'll strengthen you. This is what happens. I will bless you. You have a union and communion with me, privately. That's the strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthen me, whatever he asks us to do. Now look at the next thing here, in verse 17. The second part of verse 17 of chapter 2, Revelation. I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Interesting, that is. This is the white stone which, during those particular times, was given to a person at a special and a very great ceremony for something that they've earned. It was a stone given to gladiators when they retired, if they survived, in the gladiator fights, when they retired from the battle arena. For the Christian, the Lord will say, Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. But the white stone was also given for free admission to special feasts. And the Lord Jesus, one day, when he comes back, and we come back with him, he's going to have a great celebration in his millennial kingdom, the Feast of Tabernacles, and he'll say, you're there. You're going to be there. You're going to be at my special feast. Praise God. When all the believers of all time and generations will be there. Yeah. Everyone. That's terrific, isn't it? I just cake. <laughs> so it was really a treasure for those who had it it was a stone of acceptance this would be by the Lord and also favour from the one who gives it and that's the Lord he gives you special favours he gives it to for standing firm against all odds there's a new name now we're in the book of Revelation the new name that's what he says isn't it I will give him a white stone on the stone a new name written in verse 17. Let's find two other places where that actually occurs as well. Chapter 3 this time. Go to chapter 3 and verse 12. And this is to the faithful church of Philadelphia. Again, this reward. Look in chapter 3 and verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. We'll see what that means when we get there. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God. Wow. The very nature of Christ is imprinted in our new life anyway, isn't it? And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, of course. Which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. I wonder what that is. Jesus will have a new name. I don't know what that is. He knows. But he's going to write on us that new name. It's worth it, isn't it? Mm. Worth the sound. Oh, yeah. That's what he says I'll do. I'll write the name of my God on you. Well, his nature stamped on us anyway when we were born again, yeah. But he says I'll do that for you. And the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, are going to be there too. 
Wonderful, isn't it? Mm. And I write right. on him my new name as well. You see, the Antichrist put the mark of the beast up here, or on there. We're going to have the new name of the Lord on us. Praise God. Wow. Isn't it worth it? Stand firm on that. Mm. That's what he says. And of course, this new name, special relationship, special fellowship, yeah, rewards. It's like a marriage, because you ladies, when you were married, you changed your name. to your husband's name, didn't you? Well, this is going to be the same thing. We're going to be part of the bride. We're going to change our name to our Lord's name. Whatever that new name is. We don't know. So will be with the marriage of the Lamb with the bride. That's later on in Revelation. So the name on the forehead will be totally different than the Antichrist number up there. No, we don't want that. Mm. And the Lord is going to call us by a special name. Wonderful, isn't it? Well, of course, at that time we know that God is going to bless Israel, save a remnant of Israel to be his nation again. We know that's very wonderful. And the Lord shall call his servants by another name. Go back to the prophet Isaiah, would you please? Go back to Isaiah. Almost the last chapter, 65. Way back, Isaiah, 65. coming to an end. Isaiah chapter 65. Look at verses 13 to 16. No, especially 15. Chapter 65, Isaiah, Isaiah 13 to 16. This is what the Lord says, the Lord God. Behold, my servants shall eat, but you, if you are unsaved, you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart. And where for grief of spirit? You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you. That's what he does when he comes back. Call his servants by another name, oh yes. So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. He who swears on the earth shall swear by the God of truth. That means on oath. The former troubles are forgotten. Oh, they will be, won't they? Because they're hidden from my eyes. We'll forget them. We won't remember all these sad times down here, or the pain down here, or suffering down here. It'll be hid from our eyes. We won't know it. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yep. The Lord shall call his servants by another name. Wonderful. Well, conclude, the Lord gives a believer who walks with him in truth in love and in the light, it'll be a new name it'll be on the white stone which is given for faithfulness it'll be a treasure when you think about it having overcome many trials and difficulties it'll be like being at the we'll be at the marriage feast of the Lamb after we've been married and come back with him, wonderful we're called to remain a chaste virgin unto Christ, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11.2. Romans 12.2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12.2, you can think about it yourself. But there's a warning to those 
going back to Revelation 2, warn to those who compromise. The Lord says, I've got a sharp sword and it's my word. It's more than pruning shears. We get his pruning shears at times. What he has here is severe treatment. The Lord fights against those who try to fight against him. But of course, in many of the <clears throat> parts of the scripture, there are warnings even to Christians about the Lord's discipline. But it's all done with love and grace and planning for our lives. See, the problem what we have today, it was way back there then too. Today there is a, de- a departure from biblical truth. There is a decline all around us. And we're called to stand firm. There's a move towards paganism, but very, very clear in our land. But the Lord has something very special. Let's finally look at First Peter. First Peter. First Peter. Chapter 2, First Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read from verses 4 to 10. First Peter 2, 4 to 10. <coughs> Come unto him as to a living stone. He's going to give us a white stone, but he's the stone. Daniel says that stone, coming to smash Gentile power, he will. But he's a stone who is our foundation. He was rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God the Father, that is, and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up a spiritual sacrifice, acceptable to God the Father, that is, through Jesus Christ. Therefore it is also contained in the script, Behold, I lay in Zion, that says Royal Jerusalem, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will be no means be put to shame. Hallelujah for that. Mm-hmm. Therefore to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the bird has rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And the stone is stumbling and a rock of offense to those who won't believe. Mm-hmm. They stumble being disobedient to the word. Disobedient to the word, you notice. To which they also were appointed by you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Mm. What can I say? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. 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 Thank you. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, thank you, John. Bless you.